0: Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. In the late 1800s, a phenomenon sort of swept across the church in America that was founded in large part by two theologian pastors, uh, one by the name of Washington Gladden, and one by the name of Walter, this is a fun word, Rauschenbusch. Say that three times fast. They were bothered by what they saw kind of following the Civil War with uh, sort of systematic injustice. They were bothered by uh, racial inequality. They were bothered by what, what appeared to be uh, uh, economic poverty and, and beyond that, uh, exploitation of labor and child labor. And so they, they pointed to Scripture's call that we ought to care for the last, the least, and the lost, that we ought to care for those who are marginalized, who are, are outsiders. And so uh, they created this, this uh, idea that the way to re- hasten the return of Christ is that we establish in the earth uh, a society that would be worthy of having Jesus come back. So by our effort, we established what they called the kingdom of God, this just society. And what it became known as, some of you will know this, is the social gospel. Have you ever had that term? The social gospel, which wasn't an officially organized group. It was a very loose-knit group of people who had a wide array of actual belief. Uh, from, from you know, racial injustice, exploitation of la- labor, all kinds of uh, different things. But the idea was, if we just did enough social action, we could fix society. And realistically, there is some truth in there. And at its best, the social gospel made people aware of social institutions and the way that they, that they behave sinfully. The way that social institutions oppress people and and treat people wrongly. And what it claimed, the social gospel claimed, uh, that the American church had focused primarily on individual sinfulness and had neglected this idea of systematic sinfulness. Uh, And so the church had called individuals to be saved from their sins, but nothing was done about the systems or structures that existed, such as slavery, to, to oppress people. But what happened early on in the social gospel experiment was that in an effort to to raise awareness about uh, structural sinfulness, not only did they lessen the weight of individual sinfulness, but in many cases, the idea that we would have any individual responsibility to God just went away. Altogether went away. Not only did it become a foreign idea, it actually became an offensive idea that anybody would be considered uh, alien or foreign to God, that, that God would not accept everyone, that there would be any reason that there would be a distance between someone and God. Really, it's the systems and the structures. And this belief really became, uh, gave root to this idea that we could build the kingdom of God, not by God's effort, but by our own human effort. And all we had to do was remove sinful institutions and systems. That's all it was going to take. And in response to this, as you can probably imagine, there were a number of books written, but uh, people who, who were very, very uh, big on the, the idea of repentance and forgiveness for the individual rejected not only the theological issue that existed in the social gospel, but they rejected the social action as well. And there created this great divide, as you could probably imagine. There were the people who were very big on social action to the exclusion of individual responsibility to God. And there were people who were really big on the individual uh, responsibility to God and not so big on the, the social action. And it became optional. And so it created this big divide uh, and suspicion between these two groups. As the divide got larger, there were more group, uh, more uh, suspicion. And the effect of this divide continues today. If you've ever gone someplace, uh, if you tend to be one that is very much on the side of individual and personal holiness and and your own responsibility to to repent and, and receive forgiveness. You might look with suspicion at a place that says, we really need to be involved in Christian social action. On the other side, those who are involved heavily in Christian social action, and maybe even primarily in Christian social action, will look very much with suspicion on those who would say, no, there is some call to an individual response to Jesus. And so there's this huge divide. It still exists, but it's a divide that the Scriptures don't teach that the Bible actually teaches these things are held together. We're beginning this series today called Kingdom Justice, and we're going to run it in parallel with the One Day to Feed the World offering. Um, And my hope in this series is that we can hold together, or maybe for some of us, put back together what the Bible holds together. That personal responsibility to Jesus and Christian social action are not polar opposites but they're actually intended to be held together. Today what I want you to see is that kingdom people advance God's justice and mercy. I'm calling this message people of God's justice and mercy. Let's pray and then we'll turn to scripture. And so Lord I do just lift up all of the conflict in the Middle East and Lord I pray that your grace and your peace would reign. That you would bring peace where there is no peace. Would your kingdom come there? And I pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come here. Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me. God, I pray that your presence would reign here. And that we would, Lord, experience the fullness of your kingdom today. That something of your kingdom would come through. Lord, would you put power on this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it's really hard for me to sit and do this. All I want to do is get up and wander around. So turn with me. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. You have a Bible. If you don't, there are Bibles up here. Or like most of you, you're just going to wait till we put it on the screen. If you're looking for Micah, it's about like that in your Bible. That's how much goes on either side. It's in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 6, and as you're turning there, I do want to give you a little bit of context to make sense of Micah chapter 6. See, the nation of Israel was this small, powerless group that was enslaved in Egypt. They were a a group of people that really were not significant in the world, but they were slaves in Egypt, and God rescued them from slavery. And as He rescued them, He made a covenant with them, a promise, an agreement. This is. I will be your God, you will be my people. It was a a king and a conquered nation treaty, a a suzerain vassal treaty, for those of you who like big words. Uh, And basically, he gave them, this is how you will know that you're living according to the way I desire. And he gave them the Ten Commandments. And in the process of that, this is how you would represent me in the world. I'm your God, you are my people, your job is to represent me in the world. And in, in the event that the nation of Israel would, uh, would just miss the mark, would mess up the, their, their covenant responsibilities, God created this sacrificial system uh, with animals that would, that would help them to, uh, to cleanse themselves again if they were to mess up. And then God led them into the promised land, and then uh, he gave them peace on all sides. The temple was built, and God's presence filled the temple. One of the surprising things about the God of Israel is that the God of Israel is a God who favors the powerless. It's the story of the nation of Israel. There are nobody who are enslaved, and God rescues them. That God is a God who favors the powerless. You see, the way the nations around Israel treated gods was they were the the manipulated powers of the rich and of the powerful and of those who had means. The power of the gods was used for the benefit of those who were, were of higher status, of higher class. But Israel's God was different. He favored the outcast. He was on the side of the powerless and the weak and his expectations were that those who were his people would also be on the side of the powerless and of the weak. So when the rich and the powerful in Israel began to exploit the the powerless and the weak in the nation of Israel, God's judgment came. And when God's judgment came, he sent prophets, uh, you know, all, a whole number of prophets through the Old Testament, uh, to warn them that they were not living the way that God intended them to live. And one of these prophets is Micah. It's a, very, it's a fairly short prophetic book. Uh, there are a number of them that are longer. But like other prophets, Micah did three things. The first thing he did was he told the nation of Israel, this is how you have fallen short of God's expectation, number one. Number two... This is what's going to happen as a result of falling short. But all of the prophets don't leave it there. They have a number three. This is the hope of the future. The judgment is not God's last word. That God's last word is grace. God's last word is restoration. So when we get to Micah chapter 6, Micah is in the middle of of creating a, a courtroom scene. And that you can look there. He's, God is bringing a case against the nation of Israel, and we're going to look uh, at just one verse. But because I think it's important for me to help you read the Bible responsibly, I'm going to read the, the seven verses leading up to it. We're only going to look at Micah 6:8, but I'm going to read one through eight, okay? But you, see so you'll see this case that God is, is making. Micah chapter six, beginning verse one, says this: "Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. "...plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt." And redeemed you from the land of slavery, I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. It stops right there. That's the end of God's statement. And what He has done is He has said, our covenant was made before the mountains and all of creation. And so he's calling all of creation as witnesses that the nation of Israel has not lived up to the covenant. And then he says, do you remember where you came from? Do you remember who you were? You were nobody. What have I done wrong to you? And so that's, that, that's the end of God's part. And then at that point, uh, Israel begins to respond. Verse 6 says this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And what's happening here is Israel's responding. And basically what they're saying is, what's it going to take to get you off our case? How much do we have to give you to pay you off to make you leave us alone? What's it gonna take? And what's what becomes evident here, and it may not be obvious to you, is the amount of things that the nation of Israel is offering to pay God off with is only what wealthy people could do. Ten thousand rivers of olive oil. Thousands of rams—it's an exorbitant, ridiculous amount. And they're saying, "God, will you be happy if we just pay you off with of this? Will you leave us alone?" And it culminates in Israel offering a child sacrifice, which is way off limits for the nation of Israel. All the people around them offered child sacrifice, but this was off limits. And Micah provides God's response here in verse eight, and this will be our anchor verse for all this series. It says this: He has shown you, O mortal. What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He says, I don't want all the things that only wealthy people can afford. What I want is your life, a life marked by humble walking with the Lord in justice and in mercy. What does it look like to be a people who follow the Lord? And it's not just a one-time thing. It's not like this is just one place. Micah decided to you know, put all these things together, and, and that'll be, that's good enough. And, but he says this over and over and over. I'll give you another example. Uh, Zechariah 7.9. The prophet Zechariah says this for the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Here's the point. The point is, to be people who live under the rule and reign of God is to be people who administer God's justice and mercy in the world. If we're people who have surrendered to Jesus, who say that we live under the rule and reign of God, what it means is that we're people who administer God's mercy and God's justice. Justice and mercy is not just a one-time project if we happen to find time in our schedules. You know, if we just, if we, if we find a f- few extra minutes, if our budget at the end of the year has a few dollars left, well, then we'll go do justice and mercy acts. But if we don't, well, then too bad. Justice and mercy is not a thing that we just sort of staple on to the real church work or, or, or a way that we just we just get them in the door with justice and mercy so we can actually do evangelism to them justice and mercy is not a thing that we do so that we can slap a big vineyard logo on it so we get famous and that's so much of what we do in the church don't we have you seen this that so much of the church will feed people so long as you get our logo on the side of the truck if you get our logo then we'll you know we're doing a feeding program and what's the point it's to make us famous That's not the point of justice and mercy. Justice and mercy is the way the kingdom of God is expressed in the world. It's through justice and mercy. This is the rule and reign of God. But we need to understand what God means by justice and mercy. We can't just make our own definitions of those words and then decide that we're doing what God intends. So let me give you a little, uh, uh, we're going to have a a little bit of Hebrew definition lesson. Ready? This will be fun, won't it? because I can't barely speak Hebrew, and probably most of you can't either, and so we're going to just entertain ourselves right now. The Hebrew word for mercy is a fun word. It's chesed. It's a fun word. It's God's covenant love. It's his unconditional grace and compassion. His chesed. And it's used over and over and over in the Old Testament. That's the word mercy. The word here for justice in Hebrew is the word mishpat. And I've been helped tremendously by uh, the late Dr. Uh, Tim Keller. Some, some of you will know uh, that name. Dr. Tim Keller was a Presbyterian minister, probably most famous for planting Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. He wrote this book. If you have never read this book, it's a fantastic book. It's called Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just. Super, super helpful on this topic. But in this book, he says this about the word uh, mishpat. He said... Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. This is justice. Mishpat means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. But mishpat means more than just punishment of wrongdoing. It also means to give people their rights. Mishpat, then, is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. Justice is giving people what they're due, punishment, protection, or care. So with this understanding, Tim Keller says this, verse 8 could be put this way, to walk with God then we must do justice out of merciful love. Doing justice is the outflow of being filled with the merciful love of God. That's justice. Friends, this is where it all comes together. The two sides come together. If you have not been the recipient of the chesed love of God, if you've not been the recipient of the unconditional grace and compassion of God, the covenant love of God, you cannot exercise God's mishpat. There's no reality to the idea that you can build the kingdom of God apart from the, being the personal recipient of God's grace mercy, and forgiveness in Jesus. You just can't do it. But neither can you actually have a real personal salvation and real personal holiness that doesn't extend God's justice and mercy into the world. The natural outflow of of being a recipient of God's chesed is that it would flow out in justice and mercy into the world. And so my question would be, If it doesn't flow out of your life, what have you received? Remember, you love me and you gave me gifts. I only get to say that one time a year. (laughs) This issues us at least two challenges. The first challenge is to actually be a recipient of God's chesed. Actually be a recipient of his unconditional grace and compassion. This is how you keep from building your own version of justice. I'm not talking about like just praying a prayer, although that's how it starts, right? We pray a prayer and we surrender to Jesus. And that's a great place to start. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus in a real meaningful way, that's how you start. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that at the end of this message. But what you're going to say is, Jesus, I'm no longer in charge. You are now in charge of my life. And you turn from your broken ways and you begin to live under God's forgiveness. That's the first movement. And it's a good place to start. But it's deeper than that. It's receiving God's chesed It's allowing him to love you in such a way that you know deep in your heart that you're loved and accepted by God. You know deep in your heart that God welcomes you, that he favors you, that he receives you, that he accepts you. You know deep in your heart that he delights in you. It's much more than a heady theological exchange. God, you give me your, your forgiveness. I give you all of my sin, and now I'm clean. It's knowing inside of yourself that God is proud of you, that He delights in you, that you bring Him joy, that makes you emotional. It should stir deep within you. It should make you feel in your body what your brain already knows. This is receiving the chesed of God. It's not just a heady exchange. The way that I, my wife and I exchange love is more than I know she loves me. She told me the day we got married and if it ever changes, she'll let me know. And she hasn't let me know yet that it has changed. But it's an emotional connection. It's deep. I feel in my body what my brain already knows. It's the same thing. Y'all just got married. You're beginning to feel in your body what your brain already knows. Right? There's something emotional about it. It's deep. It's this place where you actually allow Jesus to touch the things you don't want the world to know. It's much more than saying, God, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. It's saying, God, you know where I was last night. You know the things I was doing. And you list them to him. And you allow him to take those from you. That's the chesed of God. It's allowing him into the real spaces of hurt. You know the way I've been wounded and the way I get triggered. You know the way. It's allowing him into the realness of your soul such that he can say, I delight in you. That's receiving the chesed of God. It's deep. It's more than just praying a prayer, although it involves praying a prayer. and what he fills you with overflows out of you. If you don't understand that section of this talk, if that does not make sense to you, justice that you do will be obligatory instead of a joy. If it doesn't come from this emotional spot of knowing that you know that you know that you're loved and that God's love extends far beyond you, and that it's your great delight and great desire to to give the love of God to other people, then what it becomes is an obligation, a thing I have to do. And eventually what grows out of that is anger and bitterness and resentment about how much work this Christian thing makes me do. Anybody ever been there? Like I'm exhausted by the things that God has made me do. Because you've not been filled with the headset of God. That's the first challenge. The second challenge, though, a little bit easier, probably not, is to actually do God's justice in the world. Actually, do it. Don't think it, do it. Do is an action word, do justice. It requires you to put your body in mind. It requires you to engage your prayer life in such a way that you have expectation that God wants you to do some action. It requires a default bias for action. I think there's a lot of us, maybe this is some of you here, who would say, well, that's, I, I do want to do justice. I do want to do the things God wants, but I don't even know where to start. I'm not even sure where this begins. I don't know what to do. All through the Bible, when God's justice is talked about, the mishpat of God, four groups of people come up regularly. Over and over and over, the expression of God's justice shows up in these four groups of people. A perfect example. We just read Zechariah 7, 9. Verse 10 says this, Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor, Do not plot evil against each other. The Bible talks about justice being done for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor over and over and over and over. And the reason that these people are talked about is because these are the vulnerable people in Scripture. Remember, as we talked at the beginning, God is on the side of the powerless. If you want to know where God is, he's on the side of the vulnerable and powerless. By the way, and write this down. If you're like, I'm not sure. I can't, I can't really feel God. I'm not really sure where he is. If you really want a quick step to get to where he is, go be among the vulnerable. Go be among the powerless. Go be among the weak, the down and out. God has promised to show up in the poor. If you're not sure where God is, that's a good step to get started if you want to be a person who actively engages the justice of God from the heart of the mercy of God, the place to start is by taking up the cause of the powerless and the vulnerable. Now, many of us don't have any real firsthand experience of what it's like to be powerless and vulnerable. Some of us do. Many of us don't. So for many of us, the first step is just to begin to get acquainted It's to talk to somebody who has an experience that you don't have and to allow them to speak their story to you without feeling like you have to clean it up or polish it. Right here, shameless plug, Emotionally Focused is next week. If you have a hard time listening to somebody else share their story of struggle without having to button it up and make everything okay, you need to go to Emotionally Focused It's for you, okay? Let them tell you their stories, though, without feeling the need to fix or polish the story. Now, let me offer you a handful of really easy ways to get started. For some of you, you have never engaged the world of immigrants. Can I just say there is a place in this city that you can get started? You can connect with the Altoona English uh, and Culture Club, and they do ESL classes. It would be a great place to begin to engage with people who have come to this country, who are not from here, and understand their perspective about what it's like to live here, about what it was like to come here, to not know the language, to try to fumble around to figure out how to navigate what it is to live in this country. Uh, Betty and I had a conversation with a friend of hers a couple of years ago. I am going to finish this video, I promise. We recorded a video with, with one of her Muslim friends, and it was just fascinating to hear her tell her story of what it's like to come here to be powerless in this country and to navigate the process of immigration. And she's now a citizen in the United States. But to, to talk about what that process is like, I'll probably make that video available. I don't imagine it would be a problem. Um, but it would be helpful for you to begin to engage with immigrants and hear their story. For some of you, a great first step would begin to, would be to, to begin serving at like the St. Vincent de Paul food pantry. Maybe you've never been around poor people, people who live on the streets, people who aren't sure where their next meal is coming from. There's a way to get started and to begin to hear their stories. It's harder in this space. Some of you don't know this. This church used to be located in the train station in downtown Altoona. I know that comes as a surprise to some of you. Um, you know, look how far we've come. Ish. <laughs> but when we were in the train station, we constantly got to interact with homeless people and tried to be a help. Help but there is something about hearing the story of how people have found their way to living on the streets and being able to sort of sympathize and hear the struggle of their lives. Some of you, that would be your great first step. Maybe for you, a great first step is to talk to Jen back there. Jen can wave. See, Jen? It's right there. Jen is in charge of the Justice and Mercy team. And one of the things that they're beginning to do, I'm really excited about this, is they're beginning to, uh, to create a care community. And I may mess this up. So if I do, you can just wave at me and say, that's not right. But they're creating a care community uh, to, to, to come around those who work with the, the kids in the foster system. So it, you may not know this, but there are not near enough people working in that system. And they're very under-resourced. And so what is happening over time is the amount of people working to care for kids in the foster system is less and less, largely because they're overworked and under-resourced. And so what we're trying to do is create a community around the people who are actively working so that they know they're cared for, that we begin to resource them to try to help. Like, this is Christian work. Yes, it's a government agency, but these people are caring for the vulnerable in our community. So maybe for you, that's the first step, is you just talk to Jen, and Jen can have 35 people talking to her right after this. She'll do a great job, I imagine. Maybe that's your first step. Or maybe for you, your first step is to connect with one of the local crisis pregnancy centers. You know, there are lots of women who find themselves feeling helpless they're pregnant, they don 't want to be, and they feel scared. and maybe for you, the first step is to come alongside some of these women and be a support, to be an advocate, to be someone who is there when they feel scared. and maybe this I mean I don't know, but like Elm I'm sure has lots of, lots of need for, for advocates and, and people to help. I know precious life and Suzanne's still volunteering at Precious Life, yeah, precious life and and then um, Tell me the name of the one that, you're, that you went and visited just crossroads. So there are three in our local area that you could connect with and get in touch with and, and hear the stories of how people have arrived where they are. Because this is the work of people who have received the chesed of God, that we actually would be conduits of God's covenant love and faithfulness. It's actually doing justice. It's advocating for people who are powerless and vulnerable. Whatever you choose, take steps. Actually do it. Don't just say, today I'm thinking about it. Make an actual plan. You all have phones, right? Put it in your phone and make sure you do it. Certainly a great step is participating in One Day to Feed the World on the 12th as a way to extend God's mercy and justice around the world. But whatever you choose to do, don't just think about doing justice, actually do it. Actually do it. Actually be people who are known for extending the love and mercy and and justice of God in the world. Because if we don't do it, who's gonna do it? Jesus doesn't have a plan B. Hey, if the church fails, I've got this alternative plan. There's no plan B. We are plan A, and that's it. So, if God's people don't do it, who's going to do it? We're it. Because the reality is the world is waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be captivated and filled by the mercy of God, and from that place extend the justice of God. That's the call to us that we would be people who actually receive the mercy of God and give it away. Can we be those people? I think we can be those people. I think we're called to be those people. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.